Okay, welcome back to the Paperless Fathers. I'm Justin. And I'm Kerry. All right, and uh, everybody, welcome back. We are uh, here again with you with Federalist Paper number 24, The Powers Necessary to the Common Defense Further Considered for the Independent Journal, written by Alexander Hamilton to the people of the state of New York. Uh, this is the next uh, paper in the continuation uh, that we will be addressing here on the Paperless Federalist, where we go through each of the Federalist papers one at a time, kind of break through the barriers uh, to kind of get through uh, the nuts and bolts of what it is that they were being uh, was being argued in any one particular paper, so it was to better understand the context of the whole. So, uh, Kerry's uh, role in summarizer in chief, you can give a uh, quick brief uh, overview of what Hamilton is without giving away too much of the the highlights, no uh, spoilers, the no spoilers, no spoilers. Um, during the preview, uh, and then we can jump into um, things as we go. Very well. Well, there is. I'll just put this up at the front. There is what Hamilton wants to talk about. And there's what I think we're going to want to talk about. Okay. <laughs> so what Hamilton ostensibly wants to talk about is um, following on the theme of Paper 23 where he talked about the unlimited power needed to give the federal government to build and maintain and use military power and armies. Um, here he segues into, look, I understand that there's a concern about standing armies in peacetime and the hazards to liberty they represent. And... Everything in this paper, Hamilton wants to frame around the idea of the issue of standing armies in peacetime. However, that being said, I think the frame that you and I are going to be more interested in is this idea that runs through the entire paper of, well, the um, the power, whatever power is given to the federal government regarding the military it can be reined in by the legislature, and that's the check and balance on the military uh, and whatever power that the federal government has. So, that being said, I will say that throughout this entire paper, Hamilton employs a annoying rhetorical device that I just get really frustrated whenever he uses it, and that is, he seems to love to use this idea of an educated and neutral observer, you know, who comes in, and looks at things and invariably always whatever issue the educated and neutral observer is observing this neutral observer seems to always have the habit of coming in and learning that hamilton's right and everybody else is idiots and that <laughs> happens here also you know he uses rhetorical device of this neutral observer comes in to learn about all the concerns that the anti-federalists have about all this power being given to the federal government and standing armies existing. And Stunner, the more the neutral observer observes, the more he feels like these anti-federalists are being disingenuous and foolish. And Hamlin's position is obviously the right one. And how he gets there, basically, he says, oh, the neutral observer comes in, he starts thinking, and of, with all the outcry about standing army, you, this neutral observer must think, Wow, the Constitution must make it a law that you always have to have standing armies and that the executive, the president, has unlimited right to do with them whatever they want to. Okay. And and we'll get in through all that in in greater detail as we go. Yes. Um, but uh, what's so Hamilton ends up doing what in conclusion with a neutral observer? Like Well, he gets to the point basically of yeah. of going through and saying, look, ultimately Whatever concerns you have regarding standing armies, the legislature 
always can choose to cut their funding. They're going to be the ones who fund them, who raise them in the first place. They're going to be the ones who can cut their funding if they get out of control. The legislature is a popular body. Mm-hmm. They're only going to reflect the will of the people. And um, it's no more, you know, as we've touched on in the last paper, it's no more power than the articles had in theory, but couldn't really execute in practice. And in the end, you will need some standing armies to some extent because of the danger of foreign powers. You can't wait until they're on your shores. And the standing armies will be more useful to defend the country than militias currently are. And all of the excesses will be reined in through use of the legislature's power. All right. So let's jump into it then. And we'll start uh, talking about your and I's favorite plot device that uh, Hamilton uses as, as the writer, uh, which is this idea of this well-reasoned neutral observer that comes in and... Uh, and to invariably conclude that Hamilton is right and everybody else is wrong. Yeah, but before we get to the conclusion of the neutral observer, he goes through and uh, Hamilton suggests and says off the bat that anybody who comes and looks at this, uh, given the outrage that the Anti-Federalists are having towards this idea of having the federal power have uh, unlimited ability to control and, and have this standing army, the, well, the assumption then that neutral observer would have would clearly, if that's the outcry, that the Constitution must call for standing armies at all times, or that um, that the executive is the one that has the whole power for levying the troops without any type of uh, subjecting his discretion, uh, um, subjecting his discretion to, in, to any type of check or balance. And and ultimately, Hamilton says, you know, well, neither of those are actually the case, uh, and that's what the neutral observer learns during his journey through. The observations of both the Constitution as well as the Articles of Confederation and the other state constitutions um, uh, for all the the thirteen states at the time, um, and he he touches on on those as well. And here, then, the neutral observer learns that neither of these initial assumptions must be true. Uh, and in fact, Hamilton points out in this Constitution something that's never been done even under the Articles of Confederation, was mm. that the legislature will be the one to have this great check, this new inventive scheme to check the power of the, the federal... Uh, the power of the purse. You know, federal government, uh, of the, the executive in the federal power, uh, through the power of the purse, to be able to, to check um, its ability to run roughshod with these um, standing armies. Uh, he also touches you know. on <clears throat> the idea of, you know, is this... Is this is the idea that standing armies are outrageous? Where did that come from in the first place? Because he says, look, all of our opponents here are just taking it for as a given that it's universally accepted that standing armies are just horrible and will undermine liberty at every turn. He says, but if that was so, if that was true, you would think that the state constitutions would all be against yeah. it, and only two of them really mention it. Yeah. And the Articles of Confederation didn't mention it as being important. The Articles of Confederation, you know, didn't say anything about standing armies being yeah. bad. So is it even a bad idea to begin with? Yeah. And so I think that's the, his point, although between the plot device and the page-long footnote that he employs in this, it he gets lost. Okay, But it's not just a footnote. So here's the thing. From my own writing in, in, in my career, if you have that much to say. Put it in a body. It doesn't belong in a footnote. 
Like you've got to find a way to condense it and work it in and work yeah. it into the body. Like if if you have that much to see, then there's a point that you're trying to make, and in that strong of a point, if it's going to take up half a page, doesn't belong in a footnote. You've got to find a way to drill it down and put it in the body in the context in which you're writing. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, by the time the reader reads a footnote, they'll forget what it is that they were reading in the main body of the paragraph. Um, so, and the idea of having this sort of like neutral alien observer come in and 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 see everything it's just you know there's a lot of flowery language that just destroys and buries hamilton's points here he wastes he does seem to waste a lot of readers time it does learning (laughs) about this life and times of the neutral observer and his circumstances the points that i think hamilton really wanted to get across are one you know the art the constitution is going to do something that to protect against um uh, you know the executive misusing his ability to uh, control the military by giving the legislature the power of the purse over the executive, okay? And that that hadn't been even done in the Articles of Confederation. So he said, look, you guys are complaining about this, but we're actually increasing the check on the legislature, on, on, on the executive's ability to control and maneuver with the military. So stop complaining. Uh, you know, there's that. And then there's a the little bit of the history point that he buries in the footnote, um, which is that, you know, we're again, most of these other state constitutions don't even talk about or don't even worry about it. And they, and they, if they do, it's all it's more of a recommendation, not a prohibition against having, you know, standing militias, you know, or standing armies with the, at the state level. So how big a deal is this really? You know, you guys are crying foul, but history doesn't seem to bear that out. And and uh, here we're actually have more protections and you're giving us credit for. It. And in, instead of just saying that, he buries it in a footnote and he buries it underneath all this language about this neutral observer. And so. I give him a low grade on his writing <laughs> on this paper, in my mind. I don't, you know. I can see that. You I, know, I mean, in these papers, for me, though, I also can start to see why um, some, some of the anti-federalists and Hamilton's political adversaries, how it got personal with him really quick and how he started to get on, how he would sometimes get on the nerves of, well, yeah. you know, the greatest example ultimately being Aaron Burr, I guess. But, like, <laughs> Hamilton doesn't just argue a position. He seems to go out of his way to get under your your skin if you're against him. Yeah. You know, again, of, like, instead of a, this neutral observer idea of, well, I don't think you're stupid, but a neutral educated observer would, <laughs> that makes it more and not less aggravating. Yeah, absolutely. Like, nobody who's educated or conscious could possibly be any disagreement. No with well-reasoned me. man. No well-reasoned man could yeah. possibly argue and, you know, come to the conclusion that you're right. So, like, just say the other person's wrong and here's why. Exactly. You know, he also seems to have a constant habit in his writing of arguing and setting up straw men and arguing against them. You know, he mm-hmm. basically presents the stupidest version of his adversary's arguments rather than take their real arguments head on. And he defeats those straw man arguments and makes it look like he won. Yeah. You know, um, I think that a lot of these constitutional issues at the time and the issues of how government was going to be run, you know, they are difficult questions and issues. And that's why they were debated so hard. And it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't a black hat, white hat situation of here's the good guys and the bad guys. You know, the anti-federalists also felt that they were in the right. But Hamilton's writing seems to add, you know, just segue back down to to what we're really addressing. Because I want to go on larger things. But it does seem like he consistently tries to only 
argue against the most con- cartoonishly oversimplified versions of his political adversaries' ideas. All right. And it's as strong here as in any of his papers. Yes. Oh, this was... I had a hard time reading this one. I just, you know, with all the supposed observations of this fictional person that comes in to make these observations and then says, oh, well, and then has these reactions. You know, he makes this, like, narrative story where it doesn't need to be made. But all that aside, his main point, legislature is going to control the power of the purse, so there's nothing to see here, nothing to worry about. What are your thoughts? Well, on that one, I'm highly skeptical. But I will say this. For a long time in American history, it worked, more or less. Up until the Cold War, it seemed to work. This idea that the legislature had limited funds, they didn't want to take the politically unpopular step of taxing people if they could avoid it, because that's not going to favor their re-election. And so, generally speaking, in American history, with the sort of buffer of the oceans... Uh, America has kept a relatively small core of military and only raised militaries in response to actual foreign threats. In point of fact, you know, in several times, you know, it endangered our, you know, caused it more, made it more challenging to win a conflict because we might have waited too long. World War One is the best example. You know, when, mm-hmm. when American soldiers, you know, it's one thing in like, 18th century warfare or early 19th century warfare when you don't muster an army until you've actually declared war. You just get your rifled muskets out of the armory, give them to people, and they're not going to be greatly trained, but they're going to at least have what they need to go to war. In comparison, World War One, you know, when we sent our troops overseas, we had to buy all kinds, you know, the, our aircraft, our tanks, what tanks there were, mm-hmm. um, and to some extent even artillery machine guns from the French because you can't just suddenly design a tank or an airplane when a war starts. You've got to have those ahead of time. And so that, for a while, makes it worked in function. But America reached a tipping point after World War II where um, could you imagine, for example, the, the Congress ever in our lifetimes mm-hmm. saying, you know what? We think the military, we don't need them anymore. We're not threatened. So we're going to stop funding to the military. We're, <laughs> we're phasing them out. Uh, I can't even imagine yeah. so cutting my, them back by 20%. So that my, my answer to that is no, but I'll pause another question mm-hmm. to you, which is there's oftentimes now a call for this national balanced budget amendment to the Constitution. Okay. The requirement that Congress, you know, be able to balance budget in order to be able to fund itself. So with that in mind, I mean, let's just assume for a second that that were to pass. That obviously then – well, I, don't, I put my answer in my own question. But my, my point being is we just got done talking about last paper where Hamilton was talking about how, look, look, the federal government has got to have – you know, the executive and the federal and that power has to have unchecked, unability, unlimited ability to raise and fund and have an army and have a navy ready to go when needed. Um, and to your point, that seems even more the case today because the ramp-up time to get an army mm-hmm. ready for – or an air force ready for a tactical exactly. field of battle is you know, decades long sometimes yeah. given the technology that's at play today versus what it was in the late 1700s. Yeah. So you know, it takes if, a decade to develop a tank or a fighter. Yes, and, and to get people trained and the weapon systems that go into play there. Could Congress conceivably have a balanced – but if Congress were to pass a balanced budget amendment – 
and we were no longer able to operate in this sort of, well, we'll just increase the deficit in order to fund the military type of standpoint, so that way the military can always be on the ready and on the alert and ready to go. Would that, um, how would that play into Hamilton's argument from the last paper, number 23, which is that the, the federal power should have unlimited ability to fund the military and be ready to go? So, uh, you know, can you have a balanced budget amendment on the Constitution and not run afoul with Hamilton's settlement last time, which is, you know, you've got to have this army that's uh, always well staffed and ready to go? I think so, because, I mean, let's be honest, in the modern age, the military, as far as if, if we're low on money, I think military spending currently in the in the paradigm of the world we live in right now mm-hmm. is pro- is pretty high on the national priority list. I think there's a lot of things that are going to be cut before military spending. Absolutely, but I think you could cut basically everything. I mean, I don't know the numbers exactly, but my, I mean, my does military exceed, uh, spending exceed the amount of revenue that the federal government takes in? No, no. I just I don't have the numbers yeah. on hand. No, neither, they they take up a good fraction of, I don't know exactly but I think yeah. they're a either a, a alright well, yeah. they're about depending on whether you're looking discretionary spending or total spending yeah. they're either a bare majority of discretionary spending or a close plurality on um, total spending the other major ones, of course, being entitlement programs such as like Medicaid, Medicare, uh, Social Security, etc. So those, you know, although that's not discretionary spending, but to the larger point, but it's not so much that if we had to have a balanced budget every year, they would have to cut the military, because um, military spending, generally speaking, nowadays is relatively predictable and chartable. But I think it would having a standing military was not incompatible with the balanced budget. With the balanced budget, all right. Per se. Well, you know, it was just a question I was throwing out there. Um, okay, so then let's get to the more the issue at heart that, that Hamilton says is we've got this brand new cool idea that they put in the Constitution, which is the legislature would control power of the purse and check the federal government. And you basically said, yeah, you know, it's worked up until post World War II, you know, and and kind of function that way. Does it still work? Do you think? Do you think that the legislature still is willing to um, – is that is that a, 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 an op, uh, something that still functions in today? No. Nope. No. No, I don't think so at all because – See, his, his arguments don't hold water now in the current era. Well, I think yeah, – I don't because I think part of it – you know, why is it that we have – that America feels it needs to have a standing army now versus why it didn't feel like it needed to have one? Before World War II. Mm-hmm. And I think the main difference there is America's role in the world has changed. If you're one country of many who doesn't see yourselves as central to world affairs, then yeah, you only need to have a military that's sufficient to defend your shores and your borders and, you know, perhaps a few essential interests. Whereas on the other hand, if the world is such and your view is such that you are basically the world's you know you were the hegemon you were the sole superpower you're the basically the world's policeman and keeper of order you're the world's leviathan then mm-hmm. you can't just have a military sufficient to defend your shores and core interests you need to be have a military that in case, that could be deployed if iraq invades kuwait mm-hmm. or if there's a humanitarian crisis in somalia mm-hmm. or if there's chaos in the balkans 
you know, whenever if your view of the world is that if anything in the world goes wrong as far as military conflict, you feel that the the first thing the world is going to do is look to you and decide what you're going to do. Then you have to have a military big enough to anticipate that, and you can never have a you can never do away with standing militaries. The wor- the position of the United States and where it is in the world now is diametrically different than what it was in Hamilton's time, and I can only fault him to a, only to a certain extent on not anticipating that because I'm sure when he was writing these papers. Never would have thought about the idea of America as the global superpower that everyone looks to. So I don't think his model still works, but I can only blame him to a certain extent. So I'm going to say that uh, I I don't think it works, but I think it fails today due to factions. Like as we've discussed before, where Madison was complaining of of factions and the risks of factions, and mm-hmm. you know uh, now, uh, especially when when. And I don't necessarily mean in today's particular situation, but in the modern era, uh, we've talked before about how you know the military in this country is it's uh, we've almost become Sparta in the sense that you know the military are are praised um, and deservingly so. I'm not saying otherwise, but anti-military. I am not anti-military. Uh, it's different today <laughs> than what it was during the Vietnam era in the '70s, yes. where you know um, military personnel were told to not wear their military uniforms or any outside indicator that they were of military uh, service when they got on a commercial flight, uh, let alone, you know, wear their veterans hats and ball caps to yeah. department stores and things like that. And, you know, uh, public so viewpoints on military public viewpoint definitely has significantly changed. changed in the last 30 years. Um, and so in the current climate, irrespective of any political party or administration, when the executive and the legislative are controlled by the same faction, I think it's even less likely mm-hmm. uh, to result in a situation where the legislature might actually rebut the uh, executive, because often the executive is viewed as the head of whichever political party he is uh, representative of, whichever political faction is representative of. And whereas Madison was concerned about the encroachment and the um, faction's um, effect on the new government in time. And we've talked about that previously in his efforts to diffuse power through various layers of government to prevent factions from forming and becoming so robust that they would uh, take over the system. Um, Here, the idea that the legislature would um, serve as a check on the executive's power to have a standing military and to go off and use the standing military on a whim – I think Madison's would be concerned about how the factions have resulted in in, in the current situation, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and sort of undercut this notion that the legislature's control of the power of the purse would would somehow serve as an operable check. Uh, I, I don't think that's uh, demonstrated today in any way. Um, I think people complain about spending on budgets and deficit spending all the time, but I can't think of a time under any administration in my lifetime where the administration said, hey, we want money to go do some military exercise somewhere in the globe. And ultimately, they didn't get the money, you know, and then some. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'm not in on every budgetary meeting. Maybe I'm, I'm, I probably am wrong, but I can't yeah. think of a time where I know of where, uh, you know, 
and the executive was told by the legislature, no, you can't have the money to go do this with the military. On Grand, you know? it's, you're right that that yeah. rarely happens on large-scale strategic decisions as far as, like, it's rare that the president would want to even launch a police action. You yeah. know, the, and the Peacekeeping con- operation, right? <laughs> it does happen, but it's rare. Um, the best example I could think of was when, I think with Bill Clinton was engaged in, you know, in the operations of Somalia, uh, the Congress threatened to pull funding if he didn't pull out after some of the problems that were had with, you know, the deployment of troops there. Mm-hmm. It's more common along the edges. Um, you might hear occasional stories, for example, about uh, weapon systems that the military and its branches don't want. But or they're struggling legisl- to make it work. Is, yeah, okay. Like the F thirty five went through some problems with getting it. It's to actually, still undergoing problems. Yeah. Avionics are all screwed <laughs> okay. up. Um, you know, a similar example is the M one Abrams tank. Um, you know, the military has a ton of them. They don't particularly. They're not asking for more. Yeah, and we ha- you know, they're all stockpiled out in the desert. But it's a good weapon system, and the congressmen's always congress people always think we need more of them. And so on that level, yeah. But to yeah. your larger point, I agree one hundred percent. That's why I think his whole model falls down of. The budget and the purse strings are a blunt instrument, and they can only be used around the edges. You know, it's like the president has has a huge amount of power to direct the in the everyday operations of the military, how, um, how it's deployed, how it's engaged, the direction it's going, everything. And the only tool that the Congress has. Is are we going to fund them or defund them? You know, and and that kind of all or nothing power is limited. You know, it's almost like it's almost a hostage dilemma. You know, it's like mm-hmm. imagine if you will, you know, um, and you know, in your relationship with your wife, your wife gets to make every decision about how your money is spent, how the household is run, and everything. But you have an unrestricted ability of if you don't agree with anything she's doing, you can blow up your house, and she has no recourse to that. And it's like you have that ultimate power of if whatever she's doing, yeah, you don't like it, you could blow up your house, drain all your bank accounts, and give it away to yeah. somebody. But in the everyday, you don't have the everyday decision. All you could do is you have the nuclear option. Yeah. Similarly, that's why I'm skeptical of. This power that he says that the Congress has to rein in the use of the military because, yes, ultimately at the end of the day, the legislature, as they could right now, pass a budget in which they say zero dollars to the military. Yeah. We're done with it. And now it's pull the rug completely out from the, the military. But there's a chicken game going on there of to, there is a lot you could do. Under that level, before the other side's willing to pull, you know, push the mm-hmm. nuclear option button. Yes. Yeah. And so when it come, we talk about weapon systems, I know one thing that often would happen, if a weapon system is being developed and they're struggling to get it to work, you know, they have to come back and say, well, we've spent $200 billion on this already. It's not, you know, we've made some advancements. It's getting closer. Mm-hmm. We just need $100 more million dollars. Like, do you want to be the senator or the congressman who says, we're not going to give you that 
extra hundred million, even though we have sunk two hundred billion of taxpayer funds into something, and now we have nothing to show for it. That's another you know, valid point. Okay, about who gets I've got I've got people in front of me here saying that we'll get it to work with just a small, a little bit more amount of money in comparison to what we've already spent. Okay, here's a little bit more money, and it becomes this sort of like self feeding thing. Um, and so, anyways. All that said, back to... to so let me address yeah, that point real quick. Yeah. In addition to all the other explicit constitutional powers, of course, yeah. of the president in the management and operation of the military, one of the things that skillful presidents have often used as an unofficial power of the presidency is that bully pulpit of mm-hmm. the president is one individual. And yeah. that one individual can you know, express a strong, coherent message to say, I want this, and much more easily rally... The public with a unified, clear voice than you know multiple hundreds of con- Congress people can. One of the great examples of that regarding employment of real military resources came in the early '80s of you know the Star Wars uh, defense program initiative mm-hmm. under Reagan. You know, for a long time in Congress and in, in you know in D.C., everybody thought that's just a ridiculous idea. That no, we're never gonna have to worry about that. It's fantasy. But then Reagan gave a big animated speech with a fancy CGI animations about Star Wars, and all of a sudden the pu- the public was all like, "God, we need that." Yeah. And then all of a sudden, completely changed the game of saying. You know, the Congress people felt like, "Well, we better fund that now, or the public's going to blame us." And that speaks to your point about. If the Congress actually, if the Congress actually exercises their power and defunds even an aspect of the military, something going on in the back of their head is, who's going to get blamed for this? Are we going to get praised for reigning in military excess, or are we going to get tarred and feathered for not Closing funding the, the troops yeah, and giving the, the weapons they need to win a particular mm-hmm. conflict? Yeah. And that's obviously been something that's been. And between a uh, between the lines argument or an under the mm-hmm. radar argument, probably going on with a lot of Congress people in the the F thirty five program right now, yeah. as you addressed. Yeah. Uh, so once Hamilton gets back, uh, go back to the paper here, past his fictional character that comes in, he says, "Look, in all practical," and then he actually starts to make some legitimate, straightforward, real points. Okay, he says, "The reality is, is we're not so far and separated from Europe that we no longer have to worry about anything." You know, Spain and Britain are basically on our doorstep. Um, yeah, so we can't wait till they land troops to go the world. Away. The world is not as distant and far flung as as it once was. And he's saying this at the end of the 1700s, let alone today, now, right? Yeah. Um, and where you know it's hours to cross the Atlantic as opposed to days. So, you know, Andy says, "Hey, we also have this situation with the Native Americans." All he says, Indians. Um, I think he calls them uh, savages, I believe, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Savage tribes on our western frontier. Oh, there you go. Nice. And, yeah. So That reminded uh, me of how when uh, Facebook tagged the, uh, pulled the Declaration of Independence from because of uh, offensive language. Because the original Declaration of Independence, oh, yeah. one of the grievances they brought against King George III was failure to protect them from the savage tribes. Well, there you go. That was a segue. Go ahead. All right. So... Um, and he says, "Look, we're going to need we're going to need to one to, to, to protect ourselves from them. We might also want to trade with them. You got to have people in those outposts to to guard the border, guard the perimeter. Um, and you know, you can't build a navy in dockyards overnight. So you're going to have to have a standing army in the ports until such time as the navy can defend itself. Uh, so we need you need to have this army. It's just a practical reality of the world we live in, and that's where he kind of leaves it." 
Well, yeah. I think he. It's funny how he closes with it. He ends on his stronger points. The beginning of the paper is his prescription of what we need to do. He has strong points in the beginning, but he buries them in under you know fictional characters and footnotes. Like yeah, <laughs> but his central point of the legislator's going to rank them in. Yeah. That's one that reasonable people could disagree with more strongly. And so he front loads it and gets it out there, but then he segues into the descriptions of the problems. My sense of these is that even the anti-federalists would agree that these are serious problems that need to be considered. Yeah. They just wouldn't agree with the answers. And I think by he creates this false impression that, well, the anti-federalists don't even agree that these are problems to make them look stupid. When, they, when I think their retort would be... No, we agree that these are problems. Mm-hmm. We just disagree on the extremes you need think you need to go to to solve them. You know, we understand mm-hmm. that it's better to have regular army people in outposts along the frontier. We understand that we're going to need to have, you know, um, naval arsenals. Mm-hmm. We just don't agree that liberty is not going to be threatened if we have a if we have giant standing armies in this country because we think they could be tools of oppression just like they were in England and in other kingdoms of Europe. Yes. Though I think his points there are those are almost beyond debate of like, yeah. you know when he when he lays out the pragmatic point of look we're a nation with a pronounced we we're a nation with a clear frontier that's well away from our civilized core mm-hmm. or our populated core, you know, in these wilderness outposts it's stupid to think you're going to have militias able to man these outposts because militias by their very nature are made up of just regular people with regular jobs, you know, being farmers, being shoemakers or barrel makers. And a militia you call up in response to a problem, a specific threat, but you can't put them out there, you know, in the, in the wilds, in the wilderness for years on end and expect that they're going to stand. You're going to have to have regulars for that. I mean, that's self-evident. Yeah. Um, I guess there's a question to the extent to which, you know, the anti-federalists would have disagreed with that. Because I don't think their concern so much is that there is regular troops out in, you know, wilderness fortresses. I think their concern is that there's going to be regiments of troops in the capital city and that they can be called in to shut down the legislature. Just as you know, as yeah. as kings have used military forces to shut down debates against them in the in prior history. Yeah. But similarly, it's a strong point. I think that, um, yes, if you have a navy, you can't just build ships when you go to war. They take years to build, or they can't just build them overnight. You know, and and yeah. while while the navy is fledgling in its port, it's subject to attack, and you need something there to defend it until it can defend itself. So yeah, you need to have an army on hand. Yeah. Um, and you can't build your dockyards and arsenals overnight. only when a war starts. I yeah. mean, I know from a lot of my uh, fandom of uh, Age of Sail, naval history, you know, I, when, when I started to get into that uh, area of interest, I was stunned to the extent to which even a single ship constantly needs new supplies <laughs> of sails, rope, tar, everything under the sun to continue operating. I'm surprised even, but anyone even bothered to build navies. They just seem to be a huge chore to deal with because everything's always like rotting away in this ocean air and salty and water and stupid like, erosion. It was just a huge pain. And it's it's self evident that you know you can't be like, oh, we're at war now. 
everybody go cut down some trees and let's all slap together a ship really quick. <laughs> That's not going to work. Not you know, and that didn't even get at the issue of having trained and skilled crew. Mm-hmm. I you know, I don't think anti-federalists would debate that. I no. just think that their debate is primarily over the answer, this, the 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 front end of this paper of yeah. look any. One thing Hamilton doesn't do in this paper at all is he doesn't he doesn't seem to even try to rebut the idea, the central idea, I think, of the Anti-Federalists of, look, if you have large standing armies, a natural tendency over time is to be used to suppress internal discussions, uh, internal debates. Throughout history, monarchs and strong executives have used their military to... You know, suppress dissent. Mm-hmm. Now, thankfully, in America, for the most part, that even with our large standing army in the post Cold War world, that doesn't seem to have been something that's happened in America. Now, in other places of the world, that's much more common, where you'll have military coups all the time, or the military being called in to deal with rivals of a leader. But that hasn't happened in America. Yeah. But um, I think that central concern of anti-federalists, he doesn't really address. He doesn't no. seem to say, oh, there's no, no, no reason to be worried. No. And so that's my, I guess that's my criticism is right of his writing style in this. Is he, He's got this fictional character. He comes in. He addresses arguments that he already has answers to. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and he and ignores strong arguments against him. He ignores strong arguments against him. You know, he highlights the problem that everyone agrees upon, but, you know... And he, 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 his other strong points he buries in fiction and in footnotes. And yeah. I just, yeah, I, I think it'd be much better if it was more streamlined. But that's just I not agree. his writing style. So I, I agree guess, 100%. You know, in persuasive writing, when I'm reading, I generally am most persuaded by writing where I feel like the person who wrote it squarely takes on and acknowledges the strongest arguments on the other side. Yeah. And then says, and here's my response. Yeah. If there's an obvious strong argument on the other side, and you just act like it's not even there. Uh, then I feel like, well, for, you're hiding something. Yeah. You're playing, trying to play You lose credibility. You're much better off going and attacking. Well, not attacking, but just saying, look, even if you take everything they have to say as being true, mm-hmm. I still win because of this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh-huh. But I will say, taking this paper and referencing back to the unlimited power position he took in, in, mm-hmm. in yes. paper 23. Is it really unlimited? If, if there's a this, limitation, he says, hey, look, we've got this limitation, so... Mm-hmm. You know. This does this to me doesn't disarm that because yes, there's a ultimate nuclear option where the legislature can ultimately defund the military, but ha- having power to build or destroy something mm-hmm. does not is not absolute power over something. You know, I think that it gives no power to the legislature as far as how that thing is to be employed once created, and also especially. In our modern age, there become there comes to be more and more reluctance to use that power in practice. And you know, post nineteen forty five, I cannot imagine the legislature saying we don't need a military anymore. I can't even, like I said, I can't even imagine them doing a drastic cutback because it just becomes sort of something that's accepted as part of everyday life. Well, that's what uh, Eisenhower in, talked about in his uh, yeah, military Fair industrial speech, yeah. his farewell speech and the military industrial yeah. complex and the it's creep into every, all aspects of American life. 
it's been. I think that Hamilton does not look at the fact that the more that power is used and employed, especially during active military conflicts, the more that power will grow through use. You yeah. know, that's definitely been power creep over the years in the executive power over the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes it's, you know, been taken back in parts. But the other thing that Hamilton doesn't anticipate as well is that in addition to the absolute all-against-all war between nations, he talks about, I think he couldn't have anticipated the extent to which um, in the late 20th and early 21st century, uh, the presidents, various American presidents have become increasingly creative in, in, that, in defining the idea that there are conflicts short of war. There's police actions, there's peacekeeping operations, there is incursions, there's all kinds of stuff that, playing a game of semantics, the president said, well, this isn't really war. We're not really at war with Somali pirates, or we're not really at war with the various feuding factions in you know, former Yugoslavia. We just need military power to bring order to the situation. And the more you define military confrontations as being something short of war, the more it tends to give actual power to the presidency. Okay. And, you know, this is, I want to, slight segue. Um, in, I'm sorry if this maybe, this is a thought I probably should have brought up in the last discussion about paper 23. Okay. But we're here now, so I'm going to talk about it. We are it. here now. So um, the idea of unlimited power in the executive. Mm-hmm. Clearly, I'm just going to say, I don't think that's played out um, the way maybe Hamilton was arguing. If he really truly oh, meant truly meant unlimited power, that the executive needs to have the tools needs to be done. If something's needed, it should have it, so give it to him. Um, because, you know, the one thing that sprung to my mind was was Truman attempting to, seal, to seize the nation's steel industry. And then you've got the... Um, Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company versus Sawyer, um, uh, a Supreme Court case where the Supreme Court said, no, no, Truman, you can't just go and seize the steel industry for the war effort and and, and force the issue. You know, uh, you can't. That's just you're not taking over private industry for for military purposes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now in other countries that has happened, mm-hmm. right? Um, where where um, executives or in whatever form they are, they'll just. Uh, Take over a private section of the industry, nationalize it, nationalize it yeah. when they when they feel like it. Thank you. I couldn't think of the word, um, and that's sort of arguably what Truman attempted to do, and the Supreme Court rebuffed him. Um, in in that case, um, so I just it was something that popped in my mind, and I just wondered what what Hamilton and his arguments for unlimited executive ability to have whatever resources it needed to command an army and do an army with what it needed on any particular situation. You know what he would think of 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 that case where the Supreme Court checked the executive's power to do I that. think he would try to use it to defend his position here and the power of the to lim- how it's going to be limited in actual practice. But I think he plays fast and loose because remember in Paper 23, in Paper 23, he didn't talk about giving unlimited power over national defense to the executive. He spoke to about giving federal. unlimited yeah. power to the federal level. Yes, and here he says that's reined in by the fact that a big chunk of the federal level of power 
is actually going to be the legislative power to fund and defund in the legislature of popular bodies. So whatever they do is obviously going to reflect the will of the people. And so you'd say Hamilton would look at the Pennsylvania steel seizure case and say, look, here, the other part, the Constitution calls for the Supreme Court, also has the ability to check the executive. Perhaps. I think it would be a more interesting question if the legislature had tried to pass a law doing the same thing Mm -hmm. that Eisenhower tried to do. And saying, you know, I think that would put Hamilton in more of a bind because there he'd say, well, if it's important enough to the nation and the legislature try to do it as the will of the people, then the country does need to do that. Because obviously if it's so important that the entire legislature Mm -hmm. voted for it, especially if they did it by supermajority, then that's a power that the federal government needs to have. Yeah, I just I can't think of the last time anything's been done by supermajority. <laughs> it's rare, you know. It's so, rare. all right. Uh, anything else you want to say on this paper? No, I think no? we've covered it. All right. Well, then we'll be back the next time. Thanks again for everybody for showing up um, for this uh, Federalist Number Twenty Four, and we'll see you again soon. For paper twenty five. Paper twenty five.